Hi, this is Dr. Carl Goldcamp. If you're interested in learning about the ketogenic diet like I was, to save my own life, then this is probably the podcast for you. Eight years ago, I knew nothing about it. Six years ago, it saved my life. Three years ago, I started researching and talking with some of the authorities in the field and attending medical conferences about this to understand why and how keto so dramatically changed my and my wife's Judy's lives. The purpose of this podcast is to share our journey of discoveries with you in understanding how keto is so effective in improving so many different conditions from obesity, epilepsy, diabetes, infertility, MS, Alzheimer's, heart disease, to name a few. So take a step away from all the hype you've probably heard and roll up your sleeves with me and join me weekly to explore this living miracle that anyone can access. We'll talk science, we'll talk food. We'll explore its history and evolution to today, which is that the sheer wonder of the ketogenic way of eating has changed untold number of lives, unlike anything before it. And in case I forget to mention it, please join our Facebook group, Keto Naturopath. Hi, this is Dr. Goldcamp, and welcome back to another episode of the Keto Naturopath. What I want to do in these next two episodes is something a little different than something borrowed. Is And so let me explain. There was a debate between myself and Dr. Sivas, uh, who's a bariatric surgeon who practices down in West Palm in Florida. And I've gotten to know him over the last couple of years, at least, if I think maybe three years, by going to the conferences at Low Carb USA. So Doug, the clever guy that he is, is that in... Uh, Somehow a conversation was inspired with him afterwards, and I had mentioned that I disagreed with a statement that Dr. Sivas said about protein automatically turns to sugar in your metabolism. And I don't agree with that statement, and I think that that varies a lot, and it's it's no longer a black and white statement. The statement is really read out of medical school of physiology, which looking back is a pretty basic understanding of physiology. Things are either black or they're white. You add this and that changes. You add this and that changes. And what we find in in the subsequent 50 years of research is that things are more or less a U-curve and that it's not a black or white. It's a concentration ingredient and it's usually contextual. So the debate was about protein. Does protein actually go to sugar? In other words, if you're taking a glucometer and you had some protein, and I'm going to define protein for you in just a second, will it increase your blood glucose and will you see it on your glucometer or on your CGM, continual glucose monitor? I think that the answer is predominantly no, but that it depends. And I think it depends on what they call your state, your glycemia. So that is, what is your blood sugar level to start with? If you are low to start with and you have some protein, it's really not going to make a change. And if you are a diabetic that has, we'll call it basal, blood glucose levels of around 150 to 250, that's going to spike your blood glucose. So that's a big black or white between two different groups of people. One is pathologic, meaning that their metabolism is, you know, the norm is very high insulin. You could say probably they're insulinemic, which means they're insulin resistance. They're producing a lot, a lot of insulin, and a lot of it isn't very effective. Whereas somebody who has very low blood sugar who is not fasting, could be low carb or healthy blood sugar, now we're saying in the 70s or 80s, that uh, it won't have much effect. 
So that's a big difference. So that's where I was coming from. And um, that's what I've been seeing. So what I wanted to do was to splice in before we get part one of the debate, which I got the audio from from Low Carb USA, from Doug Reynolds. It was his creative genius that said, hey, why don't you guys have a debate? We'll put it for their podcast. So that podcast has already come and gone uh, between me and Dr. Sivas, and I thought I'd split it and then add a few circumstantial pieces of information, and I'll put them to the show notes as well. So I'm going to splice in now the audio of Dr. Bikman, uh, Bickman talking about one of his favorite topics, which is the insulin-glucose ratio. And the insulin-glucose ratio really comes from uh, the late 60s and early 70s. And I'm going to sneeze any second. Uh, late 60s, early 60s, early 60s, early 70s from a Dr. Unger in Dallas, Texas. And he always believed that the predominant protective function was glucagon over insulin. That is the ability for your liver to produce glucose by gluconeogenesis. So glucagon to the liver to gluconeogenesis to make blood glucose was the more default and more important function. And then insulin was the counter of that. So yeah, it's yin and yang, but for the most part, the more important one was predominantly glucagon. People have argued the opposite, of course. So I'm just saying that was his default argument. And also he did a lot of research on it. So he became known as the insulin insulin glucagon doctor. And you don't hear anybody taking glucagon now, uh, ever, unless there's some sort of pathology and a doctor suspects it, or in some research lab like Dr. Bickman's. That's uh, obviously not people. I mean, it actually, he does do human blood, but I mean, it's not treating anybody. And nor has this piece of information been in vogue for the last 50 years. We're now in 220, and it was his research was coming out 1970, 71, 72. It's about 50 years, right? Okay, so let's hear from, and so insulin, as you know, it comes out and it suppresses glucose. It puts it into fat cells, and the fat cells are taken up, it puts it wherever, but it gets it out of the bloodstream. Glucagon is the opposite. Glucagon hits your liver and other organs as well, but primarily liver to get it cranking to make glucose. That's the context. So now in that, we're going to get to, so if you take protein, what the heck happens? Does glucose go up via gluconeogenesis or does it not? So let me insert that. So we got here. We're seeing generally the same processes activated at around 1.3. And I'm going to come back to this in the relevance of this number when we talk about the ingestion of protein. But that brings me to that point. What happens then when we add protein to the diet, to these ratios? We are a community that appreciates and respects insulin. To what degree do we need to worry about the insulinogenic effect of the amino acids as a part of the proteins that we ingest? Well, let's look. In the fasted state, if someone is doing this long-term-ish fast, hopefully they're being smart about it, hopefully they're avoiding refeeding syndrome, when they eat protein, we see a change in the insulin to glucagon ratio going from 0.8 down to 0.5. And so we see this relative increase in glucagon over whatever relative change is happening with insulin. That's not surprising. That's exactly. Let me just add to that. 
And so what we just said is when you're fasted and you have protein, your blood sugars, your blood sugar is actually going to drop. That means that your glucagon has actually gone down. Isn't that interesting? Let's pick it up. Exactly what we saw with the dogs. Do you remember how the insulin didn't change and yet the glucagon changed substantially? It lowered the insulin to glucagon ratio. So putting this person, at least maintaining them in this very catabolic state. Now with the standard American diet, are you ready? When this person needs protein, we see that their ratio goes up to 70. So standard American diet is high fat, high carb. They had some protein and their insulin to glucagon ratio skyrocketed from four to 70. That means it really kicked up gluconeogenesis. So that's the same food in two different contexts. And by the way, in this context of protein, we are talking about amino acids. So we're not talking about we threw them a ribeye or hamburger. It was, and these are, uh, this research is being done, I believe it's being done on dogs. Sometimes I get mixed up if he's talking about his dogs or he's talking about his humans. But um, I think actually he's referring to humans. And last year he did it on dogs, sorry. But, uh, so it's interesting. So it's consistent in both situations. So about a 20-time increase. And so this kind of gets to the heart. Uh, uh, this gets to the heart of our collective appreciation of the insulinogenic effects of the proteins we eat. Because it's justified, but we have to put it in the right context. For those of us who are controlling carbohydrates and have a healthy respect for insulin, this, this is us here. Now, what do you think is going to happen? You ready? When a person eats protein on a low-carb diet... I'm going to pause because we just went through two situations. We went to the first scenario was fasting. So fasting means your insulin is already very low and your, if anything, your glucagon is higher. It's, you're only relying on blood sugar than can, glucose that can be generated, created in the liver by gluconeogenesis. Okay. So glucagon is high, insulin is low in the fasting state. The person ate protein and guess what? It's uh, glucagon to insulin ratio went down even lower. That's interesting. So it went down even lower. That means that your, your insulin came, so if your ratio went down, right, because you have insulin over glucagon, it went from 0.8 to 0.5, that you have even less insulin being produced. It changes from this relatively low level and goes up to 1.2. There is, in fact, no change. And technically speaking, there's a 6% change, which means that it stays at 1.3. Okay, so what he just said, those on low carb or a ketogenic diet, if you will, um, it didn't change. These people had protein and they're in a ketogenic diet and it didn't change. So we have three different sets of data. Fasting, the insulin glucagon went down. On the standard American diet, they obviously were not fasting and they had high carbs and high fat. Their insulin went through the roof. So their insulin gluc glucagon ratio went through the roof, which means primarily the insulin skyrocketed, skyrocketed because glucose was made because of the protein that was ingested. And then we went to the, the low-carb, more or less low-carb or no-carb group, 
and there was technically no difference, 1.3 to 1.3. Pretty interesting, huh? 6% change as opposed to this 20 times change that we saw in the standard American diet. So if we put these two head to head and we feed them the diets, the standard American diet and the low carb diet, as was done years ago, and we give them one gram per kilogram of protein. And this is, re I'm, I'm just sort of recapping what we just talked about. And we look at the insulin to glucagon effects, we see that there's this dramatic increase in the insulin to glucagon ratio on the standard American diet fed side, and yet no such phenomenon occurring. We have the, ma the maintenance of the relatively low insulin to glucagon ratio that we see with the standard American diet. And so the numbers changed accordingly like we saw earlier. The substantial effect in the, the standard American diet fed people who have glucose coming in quite readily, the and insulin climbing, in, uh, the protein simply adds to that. It compounds the insulin effect of the carbohydrate. Where oral carbohydrate consumption is quite limited, we see no such effect. Why might this be? As a repeat, in fact, let me quote one of my heroes, Dr. Roger Unger. He mentions, without exception, that the insulin to glucagon ratio is dictated by the need for gluconeogenesis. And because in those low-carb fed bodies, gluconeogenesis is important, it is important, we can't afford to have insulin spiking too high because if it did, it would clamp down on gluconeogenesis and the person would become hypoglycemic. Now let's look at the liver and look at this particular process in just a little more detail. In the standard American diet and the low-carb diet, I'm, I'm submitting to you that the reason we have these differences in the insulin to glucagon ratio is because of the need for gluconeogenesis. In the standard American diet state, there is no need for gluconeogenesis. In the low-carb fed state, we need gluconeogenesis. And I'm saying that, and yet even as I'm saying we need the glucose, as a scientist, I only know of one cell that actually needs glucose, and we know there's no exception. Okay, I'm going to leave it there. So basically, he just summed up and compared the two data as a standard American diet versus a low-carb diet. And you can think about, does this have an ancestral diet application? I think most certainly it does. I think we were in default ketosis. I think we, we lived for many thousands of years as a hunter-gatherer, and that's where our, some people refer to it, that's where our genome developed, that's where our gut developed, and then that's our default digestive tract. And so given that, that means that when we ate the animal we killed, which is primarily protein and the fat in the, uh, the animal that we ate, our blood sugar didn't change. And so our blood sugar was primarily driven by being created from the liver, which is gluconeogenesis, which was stimulated by glucagon. Hope that wasn't too technical, but now we're going to go into the debate between myself and Dr. Sivas, and it's going to be a two-parter, and I'll probably add something on uh, the beginning of the next uh, half as well. So have a good listen. Take care. I'm Doug Reynolds. And this is Pam Devine. Okay, so I have uh, Dr. Carl Goldcamp and Dr. Robert Sivas with us here today. And we've all just come from a very successful event in Boca Raton a couple of weeks ago. And something came up there that we felt like we needed to expand on a bit. Dr. Adele Haidt did a, an awesome talk about standard of care and the fact that that really required a consensus. And then she went on to describe a little bit about what consensus was and the fact that that didn't mean that we all agreed about everything. She basically said that we agree on some of the core principles, 
but we may differ on certain things and we can and agreeing to disagree is still a consensus and we never all going to agree on everything but that healthy debate around these contentious points enables all of us to to move forward and learn more mm-hmm. so something came up at the event where rob said something and carl didn't totally agree or or understand what he was saying in that context of Q&A session or whatever in the in the event we didn't have time to expand on anything and so i decided it would be a really good chance for us to sit down and do a podcast like this where we could we would have the time and i normally do keep my uh, things to 20 minutes but as anybody who's listened to any of our stuff with with Rob Sivers he can never say anything in 20 minutes and um i also don't feel like i want to stop this this conversation at it, you know like just shut it down so if it runs for longer or much longer which i anticipate it will then so be it so maybe carl if you could just frame your concern initially and then and then we can kind of take the discussion from there yeah okay um so i was in a ten, intendee not a uh, uh a speaker and so um i believe um uh, dr sidus said in asking a question on uh, day number two, that protein goes to sugar. And um, there's probably a larger context around that comment, but that's not something I accept as fact. And I'm coming from not just sort of saying academic, my background is a naturopathic doctor, so it's seeing patients as well. Um, and so we have patients come through, use CGMs, uh, do their blood work, you know, uh, now uh, glucagon actually primarily from you last year um rob and so we do pretty complete you know following you know ketometer blood work and their and their glucometer and so when i look at that statement it's not a black or white it's very dependent and part of that is i've been trying to say what you said is true in some of the cases but it's not true in the majority of the cases so the question goes up and so that's why i say i disagree with that it's not based on my experience and then secondarily uh, it's if we want to use um dr benjamin bake uh bikeman uh an academician um he's had some interesting comments about that he comes from a whole different place he doesn't see patients he'll be the first to admit it so between those two and if i was to go deeper i would say that um there's probably other support for that but i would say it's primarily from my experience saying that hasn't been true so i can't make it true when it hasn't been mapped out to be true so but i will also say um because we've had some exchanges through email that it is classic medical school physiology to say that protein goes to sugar it's also part of the basic classic ketogenic diet they were worried you know they kept the protein down for the uh, for the glycemic effect so i understand that context that's not not a new idea i'm saying that I stopped believing in dogma a long time ago and part of that to the degree I can prove it to myself and my experience of patients and so on then I go well you know it said that abc in this case it said that you know protein does convert into glucose for a variety of reasons you know the amino acid alanine certainly top of the list but not all of them but that's even a a rabbit hole so that's where I need we I think if we get clarity we'll probably come to a meeting point about yes it is but i think we need blood work in the conversation and we need greater specificity so i think these are great positions to have okay i yeah i i thank you for that call and i think it is a one liner and um it is a little oversimplified but i will stick to it and use graphics use uh um evidence 
to prove my point. However, let's clarify one thing. Protein is uh, unlike carbohydrates, which are pretty much exclusively used for their caloric, caloric value. Mm -hmm. Protein and fat are both used as a nutrient and for their caloric value. So if you look at protein as a nutrient, uh, that is where when you eat protein, so I'm talking about consuming uh, animal protein or possibly plant protein, but all of the amino acids, the full spectrum of 20 or so amino acids that human beings are, that, are, uh, that, that human beings eat from meat. That's the substrate called protein. And when you eat a protein load, it can go into three different directions. The nutrient direction, which I'm not talking about, is where it goes toward down a pathway toward muscles, towards uh, cellular proteins, towards enzymes, and towards hormones. I'm not talking about that, and clearly, some protein that we eat at various levels is used for tissue repair, tissue construction, that kind of thing. Um, when you look at the spectrum of amino acids, when they're used for energy, so now we're talking about the energy block, there are three types of proteins, uh, three types of amino acids. And when I say protein, I mean amino acids. There are two pure ketogenic amino acids. Uh, I think a leucine and isoleucine. There are... Um, some pure gluconeogenic or, or, or um, glucose amino acids. And then there are some amino acids, the majority of them that can go both ways, either toward ketones or toward, uh, um, toward sugar. So they can go toward fat or sugar. Um, and so therefore, based upon the general hormonal milieu of the body, the, when you talk about specifically about the energy side, the body will triage proteins either toward a ketogenic pathway or to a gluconeogenic pathway. Mm -hmm. Now we're going to focus on the glucose. Does that, does that make sense? You following me along here? Okay. So, um, and depending on whether somebody's in ketosis or in glucosis, whether they're using sugar as their primary fuel source or fat, that'll triage it to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. And I'm going, I'm doing the opposite. I love Ben, but I'm doing the opposite of what he does. I'm starting at what we measure in the bloodstream and working backwards to how I've got there as opposed to him saying these hormones will most likely direct stuff to the bloodstream. And the, the statement I made is that protein becomes sugar is based upon a simple graphic. And Dad, I sent that graphic to you. It comes from a guy called uh, Dr. Jake Kushner. And here it is here. Um, I don't know if you've got that, uh, Doug, if I can show it to you. But this is a type 1 diabetic who eats a protein load. And if you notice, the brown line is sugar. So when a type 1 diabetic eats pure protein, look at their blood sugar just go up and up and up and up. So that tells you that when you eat protein, it turns to sugar, period. And that's the, that's the proof that we're looking at. And when you talk to, uh, when you talk to diabetics or when you're teaching type 1 diabetics about um, how to eat protein, one of the critical things, when a type 1, oh, hang on, sorry. Um, when a type 1 diabetic eats protein, the recommendation by endocrinologists and by myself is, uh, over here is a protein load, where am I? Uh, here's a protein load, and then you have to, or at least they teach uh, type 1 diabetics to bolus with a little bit of insulin um, to dampen the gluconeogenic effect of that sugar. So in the absence of 
significant amounts of insulin. Now, all these, these diabetics typically are on a basal amount of insulin. In the absence of insulin, the liver will convert sugar, uh, protein to sugar in an unabated fashion to the point that they can actually become hyperglycemic, okay? So we know that's proof. Therefore, diabetics are told when they eat a protein load, they need to consume insulin. We know that. Now, let's flip across to a slightly different scenario. Let's look at somebody who is insulin resistant, whether they're diabetic or just obese, whether they're insulin, when they're insulin resistant. Under conditions of insulin resistance, when that person eats a huge amount of, or eats a protein load, exactly the same thing happens. The, the protein gets turned to sugar. And because there's a disconnect between insulin and glucagon, insulin's primary role in human beings is actually to regulate glucagon. And also, so what insulin does, as your blood sugar rises, insulin shuts off glucagon. That's what it should do. And it also shuts off lipoprotein lipase, which is the release of fat from the fat stores. And then insulin's minor role is to, to get sugar into the bloodstream. Under conditions of the standard American diet or insulin resistance, what happens is that sugar that is being produced from protein through gluconeogenesis in the liver, at first a little bit is stored as glycogen, which is a form of sugar, so protein being transferred to sugar, and then secondarily, some of that will spill over into the blood sugar. Not as rampant as it is in the absence of insulin, although it can be pretty high, but on CGMs, people that are insulin resistant, their blood sugar will rise when they eat a pure protein load. Now, the protein load that I've tested this with is chicken breast and turkey, as, as lean an animal protein as you can get. The, um, and it requires insulin to shut off that gluconeogenic effect. And the paradox is for certain type 2 diabetics, there's such a disconnect, such a tremendous amount of insulin resistance between their insulin production and their glucagon that they have what they call paradoxical gluconeogenesis in the face of hyperinsulinemia. So that is, again, where protein is being converted to sugar and that system is not being shut off. It's a dysregulation. The third place we see this is in, and I, uh, we've got several now that we've tested, and I've tested more since, we, uh, since Doug raised this question with me, is in um, highly fat-adapted athletes. And what athletes do from a performance perspective is they consume huge amount of, uh, a lot of athletes, the, the group that we're looking at are triathletes primarily or distance athletes who consume a huge amount of pure protein, either as a powder or as an amino acid mix or as a very lean non-fat um, uh, non protected. And the word I use is to protect your protein with fat. So these are people who do not consume fat with that protein. And in those people, while their blood sugar doesn't rise very high, they are not necessarily insulin resistant, uh, at least not quantifiably insulin resistant, at least type 2 insulin resistant. What's the difference between type 1 and type 2 insulin resistance? Type 1 insulin resistance is where you get a significant rise in insulin release, but your blood sugar stays below 100. Type 2 is where you get, uh, uh, sorry, uh, insulin resistance type 2 is where you get a rise in insulin and a rise in blood sugar. And these athletes do not see a rise in blood sugar, but when we get them to measure their insulin, their insulin is through the roof relative to where it should be. So their pancreas is having to work really, really hard to control their blood sugar. Now, I'm gonna to go to one last slide, and this comes from a guy called Ben Bickman from his talk. 
And if you look at the end of uh, his talk, what he talks about of, of, on protein is, um, this is kind of his slide over here. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, yeah. I know it's upside down, but he says whenever, uh, you, with, with people eating protein, he's talking about one, maybe two grams of protein per kilo. You want to control that, fat, that sugar, have an ultra low amount of sugar, have a significant amount of protein, but the biggest box is filling it with fat. And when you fill it with fat, the fat reduces the gluconeogenic pathway because you're in ketosis. So the statement I made at this talk was to protect protein by eating it with fat. Your ideal source is red meat. But a lot of people are afraid, a lot of newbies are afraid to eat significant fat. And under those insulin-resistant conditions, those people eating a lot of lean protein go down that gluconeogenic pathway. And the issue with that for me is not so much just the, the sugar part that keeps them out of ketosis. The other issue with a lot of those proteins is they turn into uric acid, oxalic acid, purines, and pyrimidines. And the concern with that is things like keto rash, kidney stones, uh, um, uh, crystals in their joints, inflammatory crystals in their joints. So that's the, that's the context that I warn my patients not to eat lean protein unprotected by fat when they start a ketogenic diet. Okay, thank you for that. Um, so starting with type one is, and then type two, what, those are very special cases and those are not normal cases. So those are, I would say, pathophysiology. They do exist in the world, but I'm saying that um, if I had two people in front of me, because I like to do in the real world, they don't, I don't have room A, here's, here's type one, room B, there's type two. You know, you have to define. So insulin resistance, we're going to use the word hypoinsulinemia. So that's basically the level of insulin. Um, what else can we define? So type one is obviously more or less the void of uh, insulin. So there's two very different cases, but they're not a, a normal person coming in. So if one is obese, let's say, if this is what we're talking about, some may be insulin resistant, they may not be insulin resistant, as you know as well. The pathways are interesting and everything you said is true. But what I'm saying is if I had two people in front of me and saying women or guys or whoever, we're going to have your four ounce ribeye and your four ounce ribeye. So if we're just talking about protein, it's contrived. And you're saying, you know, um, Dr. Bickman, he's a researcher and doesn't work with people or whatever, something to that effect. It's like, well, people eat food. And yes, they can eat powder protein and they can put it in their coffee and so on and so forth. Not talking about that. As I referenced in our emails, it's whole foods we're talking about. So yeah, to find a source of protein devoid of fat would be pretty hard to do. Chicken breast, maybe, um, you know, you can go down the line, but whole food, we already have that combination. That's what I'm talking about. If you use a protein powder, not even thinking about whey, by the way, that's insulinogenic, as you know. So let's say devoid of the whey, a protein powder, your eight or nine essential amino acids, yes, you will spike it. Your glucose will go up. That's an easy thing to do. That's 100% of everybody. So not a triathlete or anybody across the board. Don't know about type ones. I haven't tried it with type ones. I'm not quite sure how I think I would. But um, what I'm saying is that's the form of the food. And that's a big point in terms of us looking at this larger context. So if we're like, you know, then we're back to supplements. Then we're about, well, what supplements do you have? What kind of protein thing do you have? No, let's drop it. This isn't where our metabolism evolved from. It evolved from eating whole foods. And that's part of it. It goes back to, it echoes the Joan Iplin of processed food addiction. But if we Call that out of our diet, a lot of things would disappear. I think we can both agree on that. But specifically, when people get into, I just have my uh, smoothie protein drink, you know, 
I can tell that their insulin's gonna be, well, their glucose and their insulin's gonna be zooming up without a doubt. And I wanna ask them, why are you doing that? What's the point here? How efficient did you make your life? You saved yourself, I don't know, I reach in, I take last night's leftover and I'm good at a, a couple minutes later if I'm snacking. Bacon is a minute or two. So I don't get that. So that's a different issue. So the form of the protein in whole foods is a big difference, absolutely. So my premise is, and me, and my results, is that, yes, whole food, be it ribeye, be it bacon, be it chicken, be it fish, be it, I left anything out, it, those general categories, you know, you will see, you will see your glucometer go up moderately relative to you having, obviously, a donut, extreme difference. Um, let's be more realistic. A person who's having a steak and has it with potato, well, that's going to be a big bang up. So what you eat it with and the predisposing glycemia, what was their number before they started munching on that whole foods? That's a driver too. That's a big factor. So shaking that out and you might say, well, the person was a type two. Now they're not, they're back here. You know, they're now with uh, normal blood glucose, maybe 100, 110, maybe 90-ish. They're coming down. So they're going to get less of a bang on the glucose after they ate whole food protein than they would have otherwise. And so that's a big difference for me. So once we get into all those little um, medical food products, I think the big lack of a better description, bogus part of that presentation is that it's too refined. We're still back dealing with a very refined food. And even if it was all protein, it would still kick up the glucose without a doubt. It would be hard to differentiate that from pure sugar, I'm sure a little bit, but that's how the form of the food makes a big difference. So when we do talk about protein, that's a researcher talking about working with specific outcome. It's not a real life environment if we didn't get to these contrived products now. You know, unless we have a specific deficiency driving a specific amino acid need, it's bogus to be having that kind of product. You know, it's not leading us in a good way. So that was my point. I, I you know what, I think you and I are completely in agreement with everything you said, because <laughs> if, you, if you use, and, and this is really my objection, I think in the ketogenic movement, and this is what I love about a guy like Sean Baker, we really have to get away. There are two words that I absolutely hate in what we talk about. The first word is the word cholesterol, mm. and this, to, to describe LDL. LDL is not cholesterol. And the second one is to describe a ribeye as protein. And a lot of people do. Um, a ribeye is the quintessential protein-fat combination that yeah. human beings have eaten for a long time. However, here's the thing, Carl, and I think you know this, is that sadly, by far the majority of Americans are on a super low fat diet. And a lot of the vegan vegetarians get almost no fat in. They may get a few oils in here and there, and usually it's crappy oils. But those are the folks that eat what I call unprotected protein. And whether it's a supplemental protein or a plant-based protein or um, uh, a, a, a turkey breast, I, I mean, Americans go to ridiculous lengths to remove fat from food because of our intense lipophobia. So we strip the, the uh, uh, you know, chicken cells have gone through the roof. Beef cells have gone way, way down. You can talk to Peter Ballastad about that. But, but they're eating more chicken, more turkey, more of the lean protein. And it's that group of people that I'm concerned about because in my office, and I know you have the same with your patients, most people in 2020 can understand that sugar may be problematic, whether they understand all carbohydrates are problematic. 
the John Eflin thing, junk food, sugar, that kind of thing, probably problematic. But most people are still petrified of fat. And I mean, all you need is, uh, I'm going to use this word out there. No, you know what? Uh, a gentleman and a scholar like Dr. David Katz, the esteemed uh, vegan nutritionist from New York, um, they promote a, a horror of you're about to have a heart attack as soon as you look at a piece of fat. And yet those are the folks that published a diet list that put the ketogenic diet at the bottom. So the reason I put that out as a warning is that don't be afraid to eat fat. You and I are in complete consensus that a ribeye steak, a piece of dark meat chicken with a skin on it, bacon, that's God's combination or nature's combination of healthy protein and fat. And in fact, we're, I'm in agreement with Ben as well, is that when he uh, did that talk at, at Low Carb Denver, he, that last slide was, fill all your calories with fat, have the protein. My warning is for people who are consuming pure protein rather than animal flesh. And uh, I know it's not nice to talk about animal flesh because poor Bambi, but um, so we kind of dumb it down by saying plant-based instead of vegan. We dumb it down by saying uh, protein instead of the muscles of animals. Uh, but I think you and I are in consensus there, but that was the frame of mind that I was coming from. And I think you're in agreement. You just said so that when you eat pure protein experimentally or as a ultra lean diet, it does affect blood sugar and blood sugar ultimately ele slight elevations in blood sugar triggers an insulinogenic response, which gets rid of ketosis. So I'm not sure you completely come out of ketosis, but it certainly is something that lowers those numbers. And, and that's, really, that's why I think we have more consensus with us than disagreement. But it is critical to put the uh, fat is good message out there and get rid of lipophobia. Absolutely. I mean, for both of us, we obviously have to share this vocabulary about macros. But um, for my particular job with the people that I see is that the question in my mind is, how can I get their buy-in to make a change in their life? And the macros is a place to start because it's kind of a, I hate to say it, but sort of hyper-simplistic, but there's a lot of value to that way of looking at it. And so I go a little further and look for nutritional deficiencies because uh, speaking of vegans, um, we, there's a woman who's a vegan, really wanted to get into the ketogenic diet, at least she saw something I posted and I said, all right, yeah, sure. I don't think it's going to work for you. <laughs> and she said, but let's do testing. So first thing I did was carnitine. They were carnitine, you know, and it happens, it was before that lecture, by the way, of uh, uh, Ben uh, Bickman. And that made a difference. And so that was just sort of a, a quintessential, obvious sort of choice to make in that particular context. But you can go further. And as, as Doug knows, part of my question uh, before all this, when we hear about ketogenic diet only works for, only has success for 50% of the people that, you know, have tried it. And I spent a couple of days up with Dr. Westman and I got to know a lot of conversations and see how he does it. And we had part of this conversation at the last conference in uh, Boca. It's like, so why is that? I, like Doug, feel it should be for 100%. So you, you know, you rule out in more errors of metabolism, all the special cases, and we're dealing with what we think are somewhat normal. Why is that? You know, and then we listen to Steve Finney says, well, it's lack of adherence slash compliance. And that's actually Dr. Westman's answer too. I don't buy that. I mean, I, I agree with you. I agree with you. I agree with you. Go ahead. Sorry, I didn't yeah, okay. interrupt. I just wanted to say <laughs> I'll I always keep quiet for agreement. There you yeah. go. Um, yeah. 
But it's like, so, you know, what do you look and what do you, and, and that's been part of my frustration. I found a lot of good things, but if I can get the buy-in by saying, I'm going to make your, and my analogy is this, I own a parking lot and I've given it free for a hundred cars for the last couple of months. And I finally show up and say, nine o'clock tomorrow, y'all got, all got to be out of here. I'm, you know, you had it, but now I'm going to do something else with the parking lot. So nine o'clock in the morning, I show up, half the cars are still there. And, you know, I, you know I've given them all this and I go, I'm, I'm almost furious. I'm thinking and now I've been taken advantage of. People are taken granted of my generosity. And I walk up to the first car and I see these people are still sitting in their car. I go, why are you still here? And as I get closer, this person happens to be a guy, cranks down the window and he has a flat tire. Another one has a pothole. Another one has steam coming out of their car, out of their hood. Well, they're all things they need to take care of before they can even think about leaving the parking lot. It's like, huh, these are the easy things, perhaps easier things. And so if I look at this, I can get them back on the road and saying, Take care of it. The basic instructions are very easy. Read the signs, you know? And that's how I look at the ketogenic diet. Hi, this is Dr. Goldcamp. I just wanted to encourage you to send in your questions to drgoldcamp at ketonaturopath.com. Many of you have, and so what I've done with these questions that I've gotten back to most of the people I email, but some of the questions that were so good. And if they were overlapping to other questions, I would combine them and try to put that into the topic of a podcast, either via one of the micro topics that are covered in an interview. As you know, we cover a lot of topics in any given interview or some of my own sort of reporting, if you will, on some of these issues. So uh, please keep the questions coming. Feel free to send in an email and uh, I will get back to you. One thing I want to say, a number of questions have come in in which I've given this answer and the email didn't work. So just make sure that you're receiving at the same email that you sent it in. And I think that might have been the difficulty. So I look forward to your questions. I just wanted to make sure that you knew that I'm hoping to answer your questions. And I think this world of keto is not just black and white. You know, it's nice that it's simple, but it's not simple for some. I'm really trying to you know, go down as anybody, any of you who have listened to all my podcasts, we started way back when, history of evolution, epilepsy, and so on and so forth. You know, now we're seeing some tremendous overlap in uh, various uh, mental disorders, such as schizophrenia or neurological disorders that are not just epilepsy. And also just for people and losing weight, it's sometimes pretty complicated for them to engage in keto, and so they need some help. And so that's the whole point of, at least that's what I think I'm doing, is exploring the world of why are there other factors? And so in exploring some of those other factors, we've covered addiction, we've covered hormones, we've covered uh, nutritional deficiencies, we've covered certain metabolic lab results, and we'll go further. We'll even get to more on genome and aspects. So these are all just contributions that make for an obstacle for some people to engage easily in the ketogenic diet. This is my belief, and these are the things that I've discovered, and I think other people have discovered some of these things, but not ever put them together. So stay listening, send in your questions, and I will definitely get back to you.